Hello, everybody. Welcome to Healing the Nation Season 2, our podcast for religious liberty and social justice in the context of the Adventist message. Today, we have a very special guest, Elder Lance Wilbur. Elder Wilbur, thank you for joining us here today for this episode. Yeah, thank you for having me. Elder Wilbur, can you tell us something about what you do right now in ministry? Uh, right now, I mean, I got my hands in a lot of things, but primarily day to day, I'm involved in a, a restaurant project. We started a restaurant in Western Massachusetts, and um, that, that's it. Day to day, that's a grind. So how is this restaurant utilized for ministry? Uh, right now, I mean, it's very simple. I, I was just speaking with someone not too long ago. Uh, there's that, you know, famous quote from uh, the book Ministry of Healing, page 143, that talks about Christ's method alone will bring true success in reaching the people. And it talks about s several steps that the Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He um, showed sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. Then he bade them follow me. So what I've seen uh, with the restaurant and, and, and basically the way that we've kind of learned to utilize it you know, beyond the theoretical, is that we have forum by which people come to us. So we're constantly meeting hundreds of people uh, on a weekly basis, um, thousands of people a month, and you're mingling with men. Obviously, you don't get to talk to every single person, but you're there in the mix, the community. People are coming from near and far to visit the restaurant, um, people in the neighborhood, people coming in for the first time every day. So you're mingling. And the thing is, once you give them the food and provide them with the service, and obviously the service has to be of a certain nature, and the food has to be look good, taste good, and all the rest, you win their confidence without any formal, you know, overtures. You're winning their confidence. And once you do that, you develop a relationship with the community that I've never seen in ministry or any other capacity. And, you know, people begin to talk. It's kind of like, you know, it's like a, almost like a like the barbershop. Like, yeah, go in a barbershop and you get to know people share. But for those of you who know about the barbershop experience, you go in and you talk with the barber and people share their problems. And then you get a conversation going. So it's kind of that's happening on a daily basis. And you get regular customers. They become friends. They become family almost. And you get opportunities to then, you know, well, connect them with solutions because the key was once they, uh, once you mingle, then you show sympathy for, you know, real, genuine, sincere, disinterested love in others. And then you minister to their needs. So the needs arise and, you know, they might need a health consultation. They might need to be connected with some other service. They might... Um, uh, need education, you provide seminars, you provide, um, you know, other educational platforms, you know, uh, we do a Diabetes Undone program, and ways in which you're deliberately, conscientiously helping the people with the needs that you have assessed through literal engagement beyond the general needs you know that every community has. And once you do that, then that rises the confidence to another, you know, another level. And obviously, we're, we're connected with the local church. Um, you know, we have evangelists on the ground. Um, we have literature in the facility. We're playing hymns all day and, you know, sacred music. So people ask questions. Why are you closed on Saturday? Why are you conducting business? Why is everybody so happy? Why are you playing hymns? Why, you know, and it just creates this natural, organic 
um, means by which ministry is not an activity. It just becomes what you're doing and you become almost like that phrase, that, that cliche almost, the lighthouse in the community. You become that. What is the demographics of the people that you serve in this restaurant? Uh, the demographic, obviously, or for those of you that don't know, uh, New England is the, is the most uh, secular uh, section of the United States. Um, you know, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts are the top three. Uh, the rest of the New England states, Maine, Rhode Island, Connecticut are all in the top 13. So, you know, it gets the perception that um, you know, people are unchurched, irreligious, but I mean, there's obviously a lot of spiritual people. There's a lot of people that, you know, uh, want to be kind to animals and kind to the environment. So there's a, you know, secular people aren't all absolute, like, you know, you know, cold, distant, disconnected. So regular people, I mean, I, obviously I'm a little biased. I grew up in New England, so I have some love for my, my people there. But the, the primary demographic in the town, it's a historical farm town. I mean, the town was founded in 1660s, so it's a historical colonial town that was known for farming, is still known for farming. But in the midst of all that was um, immersed in a uh, A&M school, you know, a farm grant, uh, University of Massachusetts Amherst. Uh, was a agricultural school, was a land grant school, so that grew into a state, you know, flagship school. So now in the area, there's five universities. There's two historical all-girls uh, facilities, and about forty thousand undergrad students. So you have a, a strange historical farm town that has now become kind of upper middle class to upper class, predominantly white but then also a college town that is diverse in that it looks like a, a city and it's all mixed. And that little strip where the restaurant is, is is the only kind of commercial strip in the town in between the two college towns that were all the retail spaces, your Whole Foods, your Trader Joe's, your Walmart, your Target and all that. So we're right there on that strip. People come there to shop. So it's a commuter area, but also a strong historic community, predominantly white, upper middle class, upper class then the student demographic throws it all off. But another interesting part about the demographic is kind of the section of the interstate uh, where we are, Interstate 91, which kind of runs, you know, New York Metro up to the Canadian border. Between where we are and Hartford, Connecticut, which is about 45 minutes, you know, of time travel, uh, is the densest per capita population of professionals in the United States. So it's a very influential area. And we're told, we know if you go historically, like the place we're at, you know, Second Great Awakening, First Great Awakening, the, the, the famous uh, sermon that's used in literature classes all around the world, uh, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. Um, Jonathan, Jonathan Edwards. Edwards, exactly. Pastored in the Northampton Church. That is the, the county seat where we are. It's a town right next to us. The sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, was in Enfield, Connecticut. That's like... 30 minutes away from us. Uh, Second Great Awakening, you think of um, um, eventually William Miller, which is closely associated with the Advent Movement. He was born, you know, 50 minutes away from where we are, Plain, Plainfield, Massachusetts. And you look at the dynamic and uh, whether you're talking about the abolitionist movement, Underground Railroad, Second Great Awakening, spiritual uh, revivals historically in the United States, starting in that very place. So it's influential 
beyond the fact that it's you know the commercial hubs new york and the, the educational hub boston and all these things are there it also has a strong spiritual tradition that you know has now become secularized quote unquote but i believe that it's a place that god you know wants his influence back in it's interesting that uh your restaurant reaches the quote-unquote secular segment of the population yeah these last few years because uh, the Seventh Avenue Church is a Bible-based church, and yep. because the values that we adhere from the Word of God goes against the prevailing current of popular secularism this day, right. there are people that have been afraid mm -hmm. of the rising tide of secularism yeah. and have resorted even to uh, using political means to vote in certain people in office. Yeah in trying to stem the tide, thinking that they would do a favor for religious liberty. Mm -hmm. What is the most effective way to address the rising tide of secularism in this country? Well, first of all, the problem. If we wanted to ascertain the cause of the problem, what is the, the, the cause? The cause is, you know, the, the great umbrella of sin, you know, pride, selfishness, self-exaltation, sin. So if the problem is spiritual, then that means the solution is spiritual as well. So that's the first step. Number one, you, you cannot attack and prosecute a spiritual supernatural problem by, you know, worldly temporal means. So there's no political solution to the problems in society. There is no economic solution. There is no educational solution. There is none of that. Although there's much good that can be done through, you know, leveraging all of those areas, that essentially is not going to solve the great problem of sin and death and anger and evil and, you know, all these things. So you can't legislate evil. So therefore, um, we know that as Bible-believing Christians, we're not to pursue, promote, or stand upon any overt, you know, political, you know, partisan party agenda. We're supposed to be prosecuting the gospel and we're told in that book, Ministry of Healing, again, page 323, that the gospel is a wonderful simplifier of life's problems. So is secularism a problem? Absolutely. And there's philosophical scholars on every side, uh, Christian and non-Christian alike, that agree that we have systemic cultural problems in society and secularism is not necessarily helping. The kind of obsessive agenda to push God out of society I believe also that you cannot force God upon society, but the reaction to extinguish the concept of something greater than ourselves out of society and truth and righteousness and moral absolutes and, and principles that traverse culture and are on all the other trappings that we have has created a society that is virtually bent upon selfishness and indulgence and the same kind of dangerous um, cult of personality and dangerous, you know, nepotism and narcissism that we condemn, or at least the, the mainstream media condemns, is the same exact thing that we promote through entertainment and through our actions and through, you know, all of this protesting and, and all of these, quote, solutions. So the gospel is a wonderful simplifier of life's problems. So, uh, you know, you can go through and say, okay, what is the gospel? But one of the, the interesting statements there, and the reference slips my mind at the time, but um, the idea that um, the greatest 
um, evidence or the greatest argument, the greatest testament to, you know, biblical Christianity is a loving and lovable Christian. And people say, oh, yes, of course, love, God is love. But, you know, people don't understand what that means for the most part. So, you know, there, there's the other idea that the true object of life is ministry. So that means we're supposed to be almost, you know, compulsively serving others and sacrificing self. There's that. Uh, I keep referencing this book, Ministry of Heaven, because it's one of my favorites. But when referencing Jesus and his ministry on the earth, it says his life was one of constant self-sacrifice. You know, it said his, he glorified his life by making everything in it um, uh, subordinate to the will of the Father. So once you live a life based on those principles, then you're not intimidated by secularism or academia or, you know, uh, all the various issues, gender issues, you know, race relations, all that stuff is not intimidating because you are not interested in those things. You are interested in the service and the uplifting and the well-being of mankind. There are some in the Seventh Avenue Church that are promoting the need for the church to be more involved in social justice issues. Yeah. Such as racism, sexism, poverty. What is the type of social justice that we as a church should adhere to? Um, well, again, it's, it's just going back to the biblical principles. So the Bible, um, you know, the wonderful kind of comforting and liberating um, reality of Bible religion is that God being the creator and God being the redeemer removes from us the prerogative and or the responsibility to uh, dictate how things work. In other words, reality is not governed nor established by man's interpretation of reality or, or man's subjective ideas or concepts. God is the one that establishes reality and man merely has to accept it. And sometimes that might be difficult, sometimes it's not. Um, so the Bible gets to establish reality. So when we look at biblical concepts and kind of fundamental principles, um, like the idea, you know, First uh, Corinthians six, what know ye not that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost, uh, which you have of God, uh, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own. Therefore, you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are the Lord's. You know that tells us that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Therefore, we are not at liberty to do what we want with them. So that bleeds into many areas of, you know our rights and our privileges and our um, assurances and our these things that we sometimes presume to have and we demand of, that others give us, we're getting off on the wrong foot because we don't even realize our, you know, position in this whole, you know, framework of, of reality and where God sits and where we sit. Because if we were willing to acknowledge what God has done in condescending to give man, the opportunity of salvation, then, you know, you would value others in such a way where your your sensitivities wouldn't be such that you're so offended when somebody dares 
you know, violate some principle that you claim to to have and hold. Um, you know, the other concepts, you know, regarding race, the Bible says we have one blood. Acts 17, I believe, you know, the Bible says that um, we were created in the image of God, male and female. So there's all kinds of values and, and identity that the Bible provides for us, if we took the time to look at it, that actually solve some of these quintessential questions that humankind has as it relates to finding identity and finding comfort and finding purpose and all these things and value in, in, in themselves so that you don't have to demand your value from other human beings. And once you start trying to force human beings to, you know, for some, you know, strain, you know, to, to give you those things that you really only can obtain uh, from God and the idea of happiness and contentment and um, peace and all these watchwords of, of many protesters and many philosophers and, and, and spokespersons, then you start to address these things. So what we see in society, at least what I see, and I think what one sees in society is that you have a whole lot of protest and a whole lot of uh, resistance, but not really a whole lot of solutions and not really a whole lot of dialogue even. People want to argue and people really aren't content until you accept what they say. And so there's this concept of tolerance and there's this call for tolerance and resistance against intolerance. But um, tolerance is only tolerated as long as you do and say and act as I say, do and a and say. So it's, it's actually intolerance under the guise of tolerance and it's creating an entire generation of um, you know, if we, if we could ever say that there was a generation that uh, felt a strong sense of entitlement, we can say it's this one. And really, when you look at the Bible, we know that we don't we're not really entitled to anything. It's that in God's mercy that he has allowed all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if we if we're all on the same level playing field and we're really not entitled and the only reason that we're here and able to live and think and breathe is because God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance, then it changes the perspective. And it, in my opinion, it changes the agenda. How does this growing intolerance affect us in an end-time, last-day event scenario? Well, I mean, if you read those, you know, the famous, uh, you know, Olivet Discourse, as it's referred to in theological realms, as Jesus was um, knowing that he was on his way out, virtually the last... A uh, week or so of, of, of life on earth. Uh, Matthew 24, uh, Luke 21, Mark 13 is, is where it's, it, it's, it is in the Bible. And, and he was referencing a future destruction. Now, we know historically, you know, he was referencing the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But there was also, you know, obviously future applications as well, because time continued past 70 AD. The disciples were more interested in the glories of the temple and the kind of the kingdom that they were looking forward to assuming and, and sitting in and, and occupying once the Messiah got rid of Rome and all of the apostates and the world, you know, they became a light unto the Gentiles and so on and so forth. Obviously, through their rebellion um, and their resistance to the very gift that God was offering, that was that was turned into destruction, turned into scattering. And so as they were contemplating those great temples, if you look in Matthew 24, for example, Jesus told them that this place will be destroyed. 
They then asked him the question privately, his closest friends who didn't really understand the forecast of destruction. They said to Jesus, tell us, when shall these things be and what shall be the signs of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus opened up with his his general statement. Uh, um, many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many, you know, um, after he establishes, you know, the fact that deception is going to be the greatest threat. And then he goes on to elaborate in great detail of how this is going to play out and how it's going to lead to destruction and how a society that claims to follow the light um, and a government in the Roman authority that claims to honor glory and power and knowledge is going to turn into a, you know, almost, you know, a population obsessed with extinguishing human life and almost virtual genocide against people that don't see things the way we see it. And so he talks about that eventually it's going to get so bad that many people will kill you thinking that they do God a service. That in the name of God, in, in truth, righteousness, glory, and, and wisdom, they will systematically kill the true followers of God. So the, the ramifications of the society that we're establishing, we can look back to the French Revolution, we can look back to the Bolshevik Revolution, the People's Revolution in China, we can look back at uh, Cambodia, we look back at you know the Jesuit reductions in, in um, you know South America, and you can go on and on. There's, there's several historical examples that as these sentiments start to emerge and this polarization starts to settle in, because right now we're, we're being polarized in a way that I've never seen obviously in my lifetime. And even when I look back to civil rights era, when I look back historically to um, the civil war era, if I look back into, you know, antebellum society and lots of problems that we've had in America uh, over the years. The polarization is maybe the closest thing that we've had in America is American Revolution. You know, we're supporters of the, the crown and, and, and those supporters of the colonies. But there's another factor, and I'll come back to the polarization in a second. I think the other factor that changes the game is the Internet age. You know, and obviously we're we're now into the advanced stages of the Internet age where my generation is pretty much the last generation to have experienced, you know, development, psychological development with analog transitioning into digital. But now we're, we're light years beyond that. And I again, this might be a reach, but in my mind, if you look at the story of the Tower of Babel, uh, Genesis 11, the problem that led to the need to scatter the languages was that man came together speaking one language. Man's great idea in man's unity was to build a monument, a facility that would allow them to escape the flood. In other words, to outsmart God. If God ever tried to destroy the earth again, we're going to get him. We're going to create this thing to our greatness and it'll be above wherever the floodwaters were. We'll be able to escape God's wrath. And so God saw that that basically society given another chance was bent on rebellion against God. And so he confounded the languages to make that 
more difficult. Why? Not to punish humanity, but to actually allow humanity to continue to develop so that more could be saved to kind of thwart the efforts of man in their unity. We have pretty much replaced that. You know, what was once scattered languages has now virtually become one language through technology where, you know, we now can instantly know, you know, fiber optics have, have, have made it possible where in seconds, in fractions of a second, we can know what's going on in this country, that country, here, here, communication. And, and we've created this crazy kind of global society. So globalization, uh, not just on the governmental level or economic level, just on the, on the sheer communication side to me, magnifies the polarization to such an extent where uh, before there wasn't a lot of polarization where American politics were polarizing the entire world. But now in the entire world, you know, people are, you know, with the whole Trump thing or will you go back to Obama or what have you, it doesn't matter what administration, it's gotten worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And now we're seeing this fever pitch. So polarization and creating you know, these distinct camps, not camps that are entitled to their own thoughts, not camps that are entitled to their own dialogue, but camps that are, you know, for or against. And there's now almost a rage. We're seeing physical attacks, physical violence. We're seeing uh, people losing jobs. We're seeing people having to apologize immediately for, you know, so the enemy is stupid. The enemy is not intellectual. The enemy is um, you know, backwards, savage. Um, and so what, what this does, what this polarization does is it causes humanity to look at other human beings as less than. It, it devalues and degrades the others. And once you can do that, that is what sets the stage for genocide like Rwanda or apartheid like South Africa or Nazi Germany or other, you know, the United States forced sterilizations all the way into the 70s. North Carolina just had to pay reparations, even though they didn't really pay anything. Um, you know, or Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Black Wall Street. And, you know, that leads people to just systematically say, you know what, these people are less than, so therefore that gives us the right to kill, steal, destroy. And that's Satan's objective, you know, John 10. Um, the thief comes in, but for to steal and to kill and destroy. But if you truly loved other human beings and you were about tolerance and you were about, you know, uh, love, you wouldn't be able to do that to another human being. You know, some people have, you know, they're, they're able to do things to other human beings that they wouldn't do to their own cat. You know, so, so it's very strange if you ask a lot of people you say, well, if you, you're, you're the neighbor that you hate is drowning and your, your little dog is drowning, which one do you save? A lot of people saving their dog. And, and it's almost becoming normal. It's like, why would we save them? Good, good riddance. You know, like if Donald Trump was drowning and the neighbor you hated, they, you know, they probably save the neighbor they hated nowadays and let Donald Trump drown. Now, I'm neither here nor there for Donald Trump. What I'm saying is people are human beings. And at what point does society take account of how they're treating other human beings where you're demanding to be treated a certain way? And loved and respected, but anybody who doesn't agree with you, you're willing to smash under under your boot, and that's what happened. Nazi Germany, the, the ashes are falling on local villages. People know what's going on over there, you know, but what are they doing? Just stay silent. Like this is what it is. It must be something to it. 
It must be, you know, they, they, they rationalize it. They make science, scientific philosophies behind it. They, they baptize, they call it Christian. They, they, they do whatever they have to do to justify. And, and this is what Jesus is articulating. He's saying, in those last days, you are going to be hated for all men for my name's sake. So if you represent me and I am love, then you are going to be persecuted. And they're not going to be persecuting you thinking they're doing something wrong. They're going to be persecuting thinking they're doing something for me. That's how twisted it gets. You know, sin makes you crazy. So we saw that. Like I said, you look in these, all these genocides and um, it's the same behavior. So anyway, some people might think it's a reach, you know, like, oh, well, it's a little extreme. You're going from, you know, protests and, and uh, you know, maybe somebody getting stomped out in the Bay Area and and going all the way to persecution. Well, I mean, where do you, where do you go? People are, you know, willing to shoot and kill at random. You're willing to see somebody in the street that you, you don't know has done anything to you or to anyone. And you're going to stomp them out and probably kill them if they weren't rescued by the police that you claim are brutal and don't, you know... So it gets, it's very strange. There's a lot of par biblical parallels. So in this period of intolerance, mm -hmm. what is the mission of the church to do in, the, in this climate of intolerance? Well, I mean, again, we, we can lean on scripture. And what you see is, number one, what the faithful down through the ages have done is they have not remained silent. That's number one. In other words, we're told to preach the word, be instant in season, out of season. Um, you know, we're told to be a, we're lights of the world. A city on, on the hill cannot be hidden. So if in times of peace, relative peace, we are to be shining lights on a hill, then what are we to be in times of persecution or times of intolerance or times of distress? We're supposed to be the voice. We're supposed to be in the front. And it doesn't mean that people have to follow every word you say or people can listen or choose not to listen. But you're in the front. So, again, if you uh, look at the abolitionist movement, the church was in the front. They, they were standing for that. People were risking, you know, the Fugitive Slave Act. Disobey it. That's the situation where a law is enacted by the government legally um, with popular support. But it's a direct violation of God's law. You know, it's a direct violation of, of hospitality, of loving your neighbor and so on and so forth. So... Um, if you are a Bible-believing Christian at that time, you resist that. Um, so that is that is where genuine resistance can be, genuine social justice. It, it's, it's backed by God, and God says, listen, you cannot do this. It, it goes against what, what I stand for. Um, so, number one, we can't be silent. We have to be at least having dialogue. What are we doing? Are we even effectual in our communities where we can even know where to start? with having that dialogue because we're not you know preaching from the pulpit is one thing but if your community's not in under your pulpit then that's not really you know the way um you know i think there's obvious limitations and contradictions uh and hypocrisies of the political forum so i don't think that's the solution either um but the question is can we have a voice and can we speak out beyond the pulpit or beyond running for office i think we can and that's through, are we present in the community? Do we have places of business or places of, of mission in our communities where people come and, you know, we can dialogue, we can we can share. You know, media obviously is one thing, but really it's the, you know, the, the greatest voice that we have 
is, you know, the consistency of our life. But I think that has become kind of a crutch as well, is people say, well, I'm just going to be silent. I'm not going to be vocal. I'm just going to live and let people see by example. That is true, but that's balanced with vocal, you know, presence as well. Jesus is the perfect example of that. Um, you know, he's the greatest example that we have in, in all things. And so there were times when he chose not to be vocal and lead by example. But then there were times where he had to be vocal. And, you know, the difference is Jesus was in the community. So he was in a position to receive questions from leaders and have to answer publicly. We've kind of removed ourselves from the form so we don't have to answer publicly. So we won't have to go on the record on anything and we kind of just keep, you know, snaking by that. The church has had a very poor record in most modern crises uh, globally. We've pretty much been complicit or, or silent, um, at least from an institutional level, not from membership level. And people have taken stands and even the church has split many times over some of these things historically. So got to be vocal. Um, another thing we can do is are we ministering to people's needs? You know, kill people with kindness. You know, it's, it's kind of a reference to what the Bible is talking about by heaping hot coals of fire on people's heads, by loving people, even if we're, we're the famous words of Jesus where he said, you know, um, bless them that curse you, pray for them that despitefully use you and do all manner of evil against you. So the people that we love and like, and then the people that maybe, you know, we have grievance with or what have you, are we willing to love those people still and serve them? Because if you're willing to serve and love consistently, that is a very uh, strong means by which we can perhaps influence them to be open to the reality or to even have conversations. And that's kind of the other thing of being, about being vocal is not just, you know, uh, on a soapbox and, and kind of, um, you know, sermonizing um, and speechifying, but talking with people, being around people and, and talking to people and serving people. So when people look at you, they say, oh, oh, these people are intolerant. And they say, well, what do you mean they're intolerant? They just helped me last week. Like basic things. It's not that complicated. It doesn't take lots of money and it doesn't take, but it has to be systematic and organized. So, uh, you know, that's another thing. You know, being vocal is not just uh, pontificating, but it's also getting out there and getting your hands dirty, being with the people and, and serving the people and not just the poor or not just the rich, but all classes. Um, I mean, I could easily, you know, continue with that theme because uh, the action obviously follows the, the, the dialogue and, you know, investing. A lot of people are excited, you know, big news this week, LeBron James built a school. Now, granted, one of my great critiques of all of the quote-unquote protesting athletes is that they got a whole lot of money. Not as much money as owners do, but they got a whole lot of money. Why are not these people leveraging that financial resource to actually change their communities? What is going on? What's being celebrated in social media and everything else is, oh, look how much money I got. Look at the car I got. Look at my shoes. Look at my clothes. Look at my girls. Look at this. And you got people and, and you're getting out of those communities. You know, first thing you want to do when you get money is get up out of there. And granted, you shouldn't be living in those places. You should try to get something outside. You know, um, you know, people aren't, you know, made created to live on top of each other and all that. But 
you know, what are you doing to help the community outside of your mandated, you know, uh, contracted obligation for community service? This is a step in that direction. So people are applauding it. I have nothing bad to say about it. But is that a solution? Is that all it takes? You know, you build a building, cut some red tape, and you've solved the problems of life? I don't think so. So obviously there's more to be done. It has to go far beyond building a school or having a restaurant or donating money to charity or kneeling on a football field. Like There's a lot that we got to do. And remember that key phrase, his life was one of constant self-sacrifice. What are we willing to sacrifice in order to uplift humanity with no strings attached? It's a question we got we to gotta answer. Elder Wilbur, thank you so much for joining us in this podcast. Uh, we're very blessed by the insights you shared. Can we finish off this episode with you with a closing prayer? Sure, no problem. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your wisdom, your mercy, your patience with us, uh, your love for us. And we thank you for the opportunities that you've given us to minister to the needs of others and to even learn important lessons ourselves through uh, failure and, and through success. We ask uh, that you continue to bless and provide and, and help us to at least think about these things, to continue to uh, um, agitate our minds, that we might pursue a solution that only you can provide. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>